0: Come to uh, consideration of other techniques of non-terroristic techniques for uh, inducing consent and for uh, inducing people to love their servitude. Uh, here, I mean, I think we can. Uh, I don't think I can possibly go into all of them because I don't know all of them. But I mean, I can mention a few of the more obvious uh, methods uh, which uh, uh, can now be used and which. Uh, are based upon recent scientific findings. Uh, first of all, there are the uh, methods connected with uh, straight suggestion and uh, and hypnosis. I think we know much more about this subject than was, was known in the past. People of course have always known about suggestion and although they didn't know the word hypnosis, uh, they certainly practiced it in uh, various ways but we uh, have I think a much greater knowledge of the, the subject than in the past and we we can make use of our knowledge in ways which uh, I think the past was probably never able to make use of make use of it uh, for example one of the things we have we now know for certain is that there is uh, of course an enormous I mean this has been always known a uh, very great, uh, difference between individuals in regard to their suggestibility, but we now I think uh, know pretty clearly the, the sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its uh, to its suggestibility. Uh, it's
1: very interesting uh, when you look at the, the findings in different fields, I mean
0: in the field of hypnosis, in the field of uh, administering placebos for example, suggestion uh, in states of drowsiness or of light sleep, you will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. You will find, for example, that the uh, experienced uh, hypnotists uh, will tell one that the number of people, the percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility, just like that, uh, is about 20 percent about a corresponding number at the other end of the scale are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize, and that in between there lies a, uh, the, a large mass of people who can, with more or less uh, difficulty, be hypnotized, that, that uh, they can gradually be if you work hard enough at it be, be got into the hypnotic state, and in, in the same way one... Uh, About three or four years ago in the um, General Hospital in Boston on post-operative cases where several hundred men and women you know, suffering comparable kinds of pain after serious operations uh, were allowed to, were given uh, injections whenever they asked for them, whenever the pain got bad. And the injections uh, 50% of the time were of morphia and 50% of the time were of distilled water. And about 20% of the of those uh, who uh, went through the experiment, about 20% of them got just as much relief from the distilled water as from the morphia. About 20% got no relief from the distilled water. And in between were those who got some relief or got relief uh, occasionally. So here again we see uh, an, an, uh, the same sort of, uh, of
2: distribution.
0: Well, as I say, this... Uh on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that uh, the uh, human populations can be categorized according to their suggestibility fairly clearly. I, I suspect very strongly that this 20% is the same in all these uh, these cases. And I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult uh, to recognize in very early childhood who were the, those who were extremely suggestible, who were those who were extremely Suggestible, and who are those who uh, occupy the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, um, organized society would be quite impossible. Uh, and if everybody were extremely suggestible, then um, a dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean, it's very fortunate we have people who are moderately suggestible in the majority and who therefore preserve us from dictatorship but do permit uh, uh, organized society to, uh, uh, to be formed. But once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Uh, for example, any demagogue who is able to get hold of a large number of these 20% suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any
1: government in any country.
2: The first time that I read Cormac McCarthy's novel Blood Meridian, there was an introduction written by the critic Harold Bloom. This may have been an excerpt from his book, How to Read and Why, but he talked about how it took him something like four times of attempting to read the novel before he was finally able to do it, and he kept getting put off by the violence, which is incessant in that book as anyone who's read it knows the violence and depravity and moral emptiness, metaphysical emptiness even and you know at the time basically I thought wow what a pussy <laughs> I mean I was in my early 20s so I would say my, my stage of peak edge lording probably would have been mid-teens to mid-twenties I wasn't super obnoxious or anything although I was probably a little bit obnoxious it's just that I sought out transgressive literature and art of all kinds and I regard this period as necessary for my intellectual, and maybe even moral development. but It was just as necessary to grow out of it. What happened to me recently was that I was trying to reread Blood Meridian. And one night I was staying up with my newborn son. He was probably between one and two months old at the time. And I picked up the book for something to occupy my mind. And I happened to get to that notorious scene with the tree hung with dead babies. Which I most certainly recalled that it was there, but This time when I got to it, I just I had to put the book down I thought, I can't read this Not now This image doesn't register with me in the same way That it did when that image was just An aesthetic object for contemplation Which brings me to the book at hand, which is a book that I experienced multiple failures trying to read recently until I finally just finished the work, of course, being programmed to kill by David McGowan. Of course, Blood Meridian is a work of fiction. There's always going to be... Maybe it's just a simple matter of framing, but there's always going to be a way in which we just process things differently when something is fiction. Now, it is largely based on historical events, and although the book is extreme, none of what he describes really goes beyond the plausible and certainly not the possible. Not when you know the kinds of things that have occurred and even do regularly occur in history, even to this moment. The question the current book under discussion raises, I think, is how much do you want to know? I mean, the edgelord in me, of course, is completely against such things as trigger warnings and safe spaces but I would without hesitation issue trigger warnings for program to kill to anyone that I might recommend it to and I would also add that I do not recommend this book to most people this is a red pilling book Possibly a black pilling book. Now you know the difference between the red pill and the black pill, right? I assume we all understand these meme concepts, but to remind you anyway, red pill shows you the truth that you are a slave, Neo. Now the black pill. Not included in the original film, of course, shows you the same truth with the proviso that there's nothing to be done. You can fight, but you cannot win. The way the scenario normally plays out with red pill versus blue pill, we think you take the blue pill, which is the forget-you-even-asked pill the watch TV and go to sleep pill. We think that's the coward's way. But up against the black pill, the blue pill seems not only rational, but reasonable. I suppose what goes without saying in this scenario is that you, when you take your pill, you're going to believe what you see and accept the new paradigm that's not always really a given in life you may not believe everything that you read in program to kill and I'm not sure that I do either but at a certain level it doesn't really make a difference after you read it you're not going to be able to look at the world in the same way and that may not sit very well with you I know that it doesn't with me Okay, so what am I even talking about? What is this book? It's certainly a conspiracy theory book. It could be categorized as true crime because of its subject matter, but it sort of puts all other true crime books to shame. There's something craven and voyeuristic and base about the true crime genre, which is very popular right now in podcast form particularly, but it's always been a staple of bookshops in America, there's a perpetual appetite for that kind of thing. And that's really part of the problem, but we'll get to that later. One of the things that I appreciate about Program to Kill is that McGowan has almost no style whatsoever as a writer. Now that may be due to his limitations or it may be an intentional choice, but either way it works because you don't want any of this material aestheticized. If you're not the kind of person who reads conspiracy theories, if that word has a negative connotation for you, I wouldn't recommend this to you either. You're going to need to get a few other conspiracy theories under your belt, at least to the point where you think that they're somewhat plausible before you can begin to take in program to kill. Probably the one I would recommend is a book, Ultimate Evil, by Maury Terry. And I'm actually only halfway through this book myself currently. But Program to Kill obviously expands upon the main thesis in Terry's controversial book, to say the least, about the Son of Sam killings, which is that rather than those murders being the product of one lone nut, David Berkowitz, They're in fact carried out by a group of people connected to a satanic cult. There's a sense also in which McGowan's book puts to shame most other conspiracy books as well. And I'm thinking of works like James Shelby Downard and Michael Hoffman's work on the extreme end, which are kind of like schizoid prose poems. Now, I'm not saying McGowan never dips his toe into the synchromystical, but for the most part, this book is a fairly sober, fact based litany of horrible deeds done by extreme psychopaths. Now you know about these kind of things. If you watch shows like Mindhunter or Hannibal, or any number of the endlessly growing serial killer and related depravity-based entertainment in our time. But there's something about McGowan's work that just hits you in the gut. But none of those entertainments, or very few, pursue the idea that those evil minds, those deviant predators, might in fact be controlled and directed by the powers that be. Now, PTK has become something like required reading or even a foundational text for the online conspiracy left. Not just them, but especially them. For what I suppose are obvious reasons. The connection between serial killers and Uncle Sam. But this is really controversial for the left generally, which, influenced by the thinking of Marx, tends to prefer to look at systems as driving forces in the world and not individual actors or small groups of people carrying out plans in secret, a gestalt that is much more commonly associated with the right. Now I view this as a total false dichotomy for reasons I don't really feel like unpacking at the moment. Another relevant paradigm that I totally reject on its face is that you should never attribute to malice what could be attributed to incompetence. Pretty much anything could be attributed to incompetence. But again, I think this is a false dichotomy. But let's get into the nitty-gritty of the book And I'm going to go right to the thesis, such as it is. And I'm going to read a couple of quotes from Program to Kill. Quote, Rather than the profile of a lone predator, driven by his own internal demons, we find instead a profile of controlled assassins and controlled patsies, conditioned and programmed by a variety of intelligence fronts, including military entities, psychiatric institutions, and satanic cults. There's a very real possibility that an underground network of satanic cults has largely replaced the Mafia's Murder Incorporated as America's premier murder-for-hire organization. Researcher and author Michael Newton has drawn that conclusion. In Raising Hell, he charges that the Black Cross, a faction of the process-spawned 4P cult, function specifically as a satanic murder ink." Jumping down a little bit to another paragraph. goals of psychological warfare are no different here at home than they were in Southeast Asia or Central America, to scare the people, in this case the American people, into willingly surrendering their rights and accepting ever-increasing levels of repression, and to desensitize the people to horrendous levels of interpersonal violence. The ultimate goal, and one that we are rapidly approaching, is the destruction of all social bonds and the obliteration of any remaining sense of community, the complete atomization of society. Famed conspiracy researcher May Brussel made a telling observation nearly three decades ago in 1974, quote, what we are now experiencing is the importation of the dreaded Operation Phoenix program into the United States. Through various created and manipulated acts of violence, the only solution to chaos, anarchy, and senseless violent acts will be a police state. We can expect the planned terrorization of the U.S. population to escalate rapidly, end quote. So this is heavy stuff, and probably stated so baldly like that, without providing all the evidence he gives, makes it a little hard to accept, but I wanted to get that out there just so you know what the thesis is. Now you should know what the Phoenix program was. This took place in Vietnam and was essentially a terror campaign unleashed upon the Vietnamese population, ostensibly as extreme measures to ferret out Viet Cong. It was conducted by the CIA, US Special Ops. U.S. Army Intelligence, Navy SEALs, various special forces, and the Vietnam National Police Force. And they unleashed hell on the population, including rape, torture, cannibalism. Now we know that Colonel Michael Aquino was head of psychological warfare during this time that he carried out certain operations in Vietnam. It's not proven, but likely that he was involved in the Phoenix program as well. And if you don't know who Michael Aquino is, uh, go look him up. It's kind of elementary uh, conspiracy theory stuff at this point, but basically um, psychological warfare guy also happens to be the head of a the Temple of Set, an offshoot of the Church of Satan. <clears throat> now, probably the best case study that McGowan has for a connection between Operation Phoenix and domestic American serial killers is Arthur Shawcross, who was a Vietnam vet and who was heavily decorated for committing very similar acts that he would later be imprisoned for when he did them at home but in the context of the war in Vietnam it was just doing his job for Uncle Sam so I can't think of a better example of the chickens coming home to roost now you might say okay but this is an unintentional thing, it's blowback for imperialism. And I think there might be something to that, or just to the fact that serial killers are the product of living in a decadent late phase empire with high levels of social atomization. The difference, of course, being here, what makes it a conspiracy theory is that it is by design. And for that, you have to go through the book to see all the evidence, which I won't go through all of, but... One of the interesting things about the book, one of the, the thing that makes it so difficult, actually, the reason why I failed uh, to, to really get into this book for a while, is that before he even gets to any of the serial killer stuff, he has a whole section of the book... That deals with pedophile networks. I mean he drops. The gauntlet here. This is very difficult material. Dealing with the extreme. Abuse of children. By not. Lone nuts here and there. That could be dismissed as outliers. But organized networks. Of very. Prominent, wealthy, connected, powerful individuals engaging in extreme acts of sadism toward children of all ages. Not just sexual abuse, torture, and even murder, but the filming of these acts and the trading of this pornography. In illegal markets now you could see why this is so difficult for someone with a young child and you might wonder why I even <laughs> made the effort and I, I kind of questioned myself at the same time but I do think it's important for me personally I wouldn't blame others for not wanting to face this kind of thing um, it's important for me to face the world as it is and also, to imagine how it could be, of course, but first you need to know the reality but anyway, uh if you want to get a taste of that, which I don't really want to get into in depth, you know you can look up on Wikipedia the Dutroux affair as d u t. r o u x read about the Belgian psychopath who was able to kill and abuse most likely on behalf of a depraved elite who was nearly successful in derailing his being brought to justice a situation that got so bad that there had to be mass protests on behalf of the citizenry so this is a very real case it's just not incredibly well known because it happened outside of America but anyway go look that up if you want to have a bad day but then he goes on to detail a number of incidents in various cities in Eastern Europe South America I believe or Central America which fit a similar pattern and suggests that by far the largest market for the snuff films produced by these networks is in the United States the Imperial Corps now his sources it's important to point out here are mainstream sources outfits like The Guardian nothing extreme, nothing outré or part of the alternative media. Um, this is key to this book, I think, because a lot of times you will pick up conspiracy literature and it references other prior conspiracy books so that by this point, the conspiracy lore is very well developed. Now he does from time to time, uh, reference independent researchers such as the Uh, quote that I gave previously about the Phoenix program where he quoted Mae Brussel and the guy who wrote Raising Hell. But for the most part, his notes come from, his notes come from mainstream. His references are from mainstream sources. The difference, however, is in the emphasis he places on anomalous facts that come up in these cases, which are ignored by the mainstream media in favor of a narrative that they already have that is being put forth which is essentially an establishment narrative now as mentioned before he is attacking the mythology of the serial killer which was created by the fbi behavioral sciences unit primarily by the guy robert Ressler um and uh, john douglas i think uh, at least was his co-author i'm not clear on uh what exactly his job was but uh, they're the guys behind the book Mindhunter which is a good show but I think it does also perpetuate the same mythology Um, that being that serial killers are people who are primarily working alone that they attack strangers that they have a very specific M.O. or signature and what... What McGowan shows is that he looks at case after case of serial killers and finds things that don't fit. Also, he completely revises the view of famous cases that you thought you knew, like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, and shows some incredible things about them, which is that, for instance, with Ted Bundy, there is just so little evidence that actually connected him to the crimes that he committed. That he was said to commit anyway. Now McGowan doesn't actually suggest that Ted Bundy was an innocent patsy. That's part of his theory is that, uh, of course, there are some killers who are working as basically contract killers. Not that they aren't, you know, also serial killers uh, in the traditional sense, but that they're being used in a more systematic way. And then there are those who are essentially patsies. Maybe they're completely innocent, maybe they're guilty of one or two murders, but they end up taking a rap for a whole slew of murders. And what happens in either way is that they're protecting larger forces and networks behind a lot of these crimes. So you may not know this, but both Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy claimed that there were other people involved. Bundy made an allusion to this when he was asked where he got the money because, of course, he he had escaped. He had been captured a couple of times and escaped um, and went from, I think, Colorado to Florida and was finally caught there when he went on a spree at a sorority house. Um, And the question is where he got money. And, of course, he was said to have been pickpocketing and things like that, um, but he made an allusion to the fact that other people were involved. And then with Gacy, after he was arrested, it was his assumption that other people had been arrested at the same time there were also some witnesses to other people being involved with Gacy's crimes it was known that half a dozen people had the keys to his house and now you probably know that Gacy was uh, involved at some level with uh, the Democratic Party it's kind of funny I, I I've been Lately thinking of the Republican and Democratic parties as the party of Ted Bundy and the party of John Wayne Gacy. Uh, But you probably don't know that Gacy was involved in a sort of Democratic Party social club called the JCS. It was essentially a grooming operation and implicated in all kinds of sexual assaults and abuse and uh, other crimes and misdemeanors. And this, uh, this also points to the fact that what Gacy was up to involved some other people behind the scenes as well. And probably his paradigm case for the contract killer theory, the assassin, rather than the patsy, is Henry Lee Lucas. Now it's funny, a lot of the profiler angles on serial killers don't really like to talk about Henry Lee Uh, and this is because just on the face of it he did not operate in the way that serial killers generally are said to operate Um, one is that he worked with a partner Um, now this is also true for uh, the killer Leonard Lake, who worked with Charles Ng um, who McGowan actually shows may not have killed anyone himself and so he kind of fits the more of the patsy mold but lucas is well known that he had a partner otis tool in crime and also that his crimes were completely miscellaneous so to speak he killed people with a, a number of different kinds of weapons in a number of different ways and his victims were basically all over the map um, this was not a sort of specific psychosexual fetish beyond the fetish of killing itself in fact his MO so to speak as McGowan describes it fits more the model of either a mafia hitman or a CIA trained killer of the kind of thing that was happening in uh, the School of the Americas various death squad campaigns in uh, Central South America uh, And the aforementioned Phoenix program as well and in fact Henry Lee himself made the claim that he was recruited and trained by a US military connected death cult and was trained as an assassin so I think you can see and it was kind of strange to me in first reading it because I was like "This, this is a book about serial killers correct why does he have this whole long part in the beginning about Pedophile networks. Well, I mean, pedophilia is a major component of the crimes of serial killers, as he shows as well. But also, the important component is the network of elites aspect behind the crimes. Now, when it comes to a lot of these serial killer cases, the evidence is more tantalizing than substantial, I'd have to say. But there's a great deal of circumstantial evidence, a great deal of patterns. And at the very least, I would say this book blows apart the standard serial killer mythology that you see in film after film and TV show after TV show. Uh, This whole world of the serial killer has become... An aspect of american culture and entertainment a genre unto itself sort of like the gangster genre which of course alludes to another essentially psychopathic element but also a basic structural economic element of american society and it's interesting that he suggests here that the serial killer has essentially replaced the mafia of course the serial killer in connection to satanic cults and that's another element uh there's always some kind of suggested satanic element here sometimes it's very obvious as in the case with richard ramirez who you know had all of the paraphernalia and who went to california and visited anton lavey and so on and so forth and uh this is the element where you which kind of brings in some of uh what you might think of as the less sober journalistic qualities of of mcgowan uh where he He has a habit of bringing up any time a a significant event in these crimes takes place on, say, Alistair Crowley's birthday, or on Hitler's birthday, or on Walpurgisnacht, or something along those lines. Uh, He does this also in his other book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Another very intriguing uh, thesis being followed up here. Not not quite as dark, because... uh, it doesn't deal with these kind of extreme crimes but I think those these two books need to be read in conjunction with one another but for myself I find you know that stuff kind of intriguing but I don't uh, completely think that that's always relevant and I'm also not sure that uh, all of the facts are correct for instance he says that uh, Lamas is an important holiday on the occult calendar and Lamas is a contraction of loaf mass. It's uh, primarily celebrated in the Anglo-Saxon world and it might have pagan origins but it is a perfectly accepted Christian holiday. And I could be wrong but I've never really heard of it having much significance in the occult world. I've been informed by Someone else as well that his claim as to the age when Tracy Lord started uh, participating in pornography is off by a few years. But anyway, even if some facts are wrong here and there, that wouldn't put him outside of the norm for journalism or nonfiction, to be quite honest. On the issue of these satanic cults, it's something of an open question in my mind whether they are merely fronts for U.S. intelligence slash military or whether in fact this is the ideology of the ruling elite. Because, you know, the conspiracy cliche, most likely the world is governed by satanic pedophiles, right? But if you don't think that the CIA uses various kinds of cults and instrumentalizes them for whatever purposes it requires, I think you need to do the work a little bit more. That the world is run by satanic pedophiles is kind of one of those liminal markers of the supposedly schizoid, or on one point of view, the anti-Semitic point of no return, right? I don't remember who made the tweet, but somebody posted about QAnon and how QAnon was a psyop. And it was saying that the nature of the PSYOP was not that QAnon believes that the world is run by a cabal of satanic pedophiles. The PSYOP part of it was the notion that they had that there was a faction within the ruling elite that was trying to stop it. And clearly, what QAnon was doing was redirecting all of this energy toward well, away from realistic demonstrable events toward fantasy ones and kind of shit-coding the whole enterprise but then also it was channeling All of it toward accusing only Democratic Party people and rallying people in support of Trump. I mean, once January 6th happened, you you saw the telos of the QAnon PSYOP. I mean, undoubtedly. Maybe that event had not been planned for a long time, but it was utilized just like Dave McGowan says that serial killers tend to use whatever weapon is at hand, which is exactly how assassin training schools teach people to do it. I've often wondered if QAnon wasn't designed by somebody who had a pretty solid knowledge of the patterns of American religious revivals. I believe Great Awakening is actually one of their slogans. But anyway, should seem obvious um, with the Epstein stuff that we know that this is not a partisan phenomenon and continuing the partisan charade and the electoral ridiculousness that we endure every four years every two years actually isn't helping at all again what do you prefer the party of Ted Bundy or the party of John Wayne Gacy But again, this question of the dark occultism that always seems to be connected to these kinds of events, whether that's the true faith of the power elite, or whether it's something that's simply instrumentalized for material interests to use a popular leftist phrase. Once again, I think we may be facing a false dichotomy. I think and this is just speculation that it is probably both depending on the scale that you want to look at. The last chapter of the book is called Role Models, and it deals with two important precursors to a kind of horrifying shenanigans that uh, McGowan documents throughout the book both of them are french for some odd reason and both of them are aristocrats perhaps for obvious reasons and that would be Gilles de Ray and the marquis de Sade ray who lived in The 15th century, and fought in the Hundred Years' War, along with Joan of Arc, of all people, was one of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country. After the war, he holed up in his castle and devoted his life to studying the occult and to raping, torturing, and murdering children that he had his servants kidnap for him from the neighboring villages. His victims numbered in the hundreds before he was finally tried and executed. The Details are gruesome, but in a way, Ray was sort of just an ordinary, debauched, wealthy pervert. Then there's Desaad. Uh, we probably know at least a little about him, And if not, you can read as much as you care to. But uh, Saad's actual crimes were well short of what Ray did. He was imprisoned numerous times for abusing prostitutes. But what he wrote when he let his imagination run wild was far in excess almost of what anybody's ever done. As much as I kind of hate to say so, Saad is an important writer. What he helps you to understand is that sadism is a worldview. Saad was a philosopher and a pornographer in one. And because of this, he is one of the most influential men of the modern world, I would say. You ever seen the movie Videodrome? That's uh, one of my all time favorites. Uh, James Woods plays as this sleazy cable TV producer who's pushing the boundaries of what you can show on air. Uh, this is from the early 80s. So this is a Cronenberg movie, if you don't know. And he he gets involved in trying to track down this mysterious satellite signal that's uh, been broadcasting nothing but hardcore snuff films, which at first he doesn't know if they're real or simulated. But anyway, there's, uh, there's this Eastern European woman who... I forget what she does, but she he tries to get uh, her to help him track down the Videodrome signal through some kind of connections that she has and she warns him off of uh, of the case, so to speak, and she tells him to not mess with this stuff because it's not just about crime, that it's political in nature and what she says ominously is it has a philosophy and that's maybe the most disturbing thing about sadism of this kind, sadism proper. Sadism is a is a worldview as I said. And that would have to be true, I think for the program to kill paradigm to be real one of the kind of mind-boggling things to contemplate about all of this stuff is the notion of serial killers being utilized by people who are And perhaps even orderly and clean cut in their own day to day behavior, but these monstrosities being used as a tool of statecraft, you know, to be able to do that, or these psychopaths and extreme perverts being, getting caught up in these uh, blackmail operations, being blackmailed perhaps by people who themselves don't possess these vices, but have learned how to employ and control those who do. There's something kind of crazy about that, even more so than considering a world which is simply run by the sadists themselves but a sadist ruled society in itself is also a pretty insane idea and it's something that uh, Aldous Huxley thought a lot about and kept kind of coming back to it he was interested in Sod and even though he seemed to think that his world wouldn't function because it would be like a universal madness but he nevertheless uh, referred to it as the ultimate revolution but anyway Videodrome is a very PTK film even more so than Eyes Wide Shut I'd, I'd say Uh, but for, for these reasons, I think Saad is underread, or perhaps just read by the wrong people. Camille Paglia has a good chapter on him in *Sexual Personae*, where she reads his work as a critique of Rousseau's romantic view of nature, but she's sympathetic to Saad. Whereas, on the other hand, you have Roger Shattuck, another literary critic. Uh, in his book Forbidden Knowledge from Prometheus to Pornography, who presents a very unsympathetic view, and he's mostly concerned about Saad's real-world influence, including on serial killers such as Ian Brady and Ted Bundy. So PTK fans might want to take a look at that book as well. And there's also a chapter on Saad in Dialectic of Enlightenment by Odoro and Horkheimer, and honestly, I couldn't really tell you much about that. It was one of the first difficult theory books that I ever read, and I wasn't really prepared for it at the time. Although I've gone back and reread um, the culture industry chapter, which is very influential, um, but not the not the Saad one. But it does deal with him as an Enlightenment thinker, and uh, it relates him to Kant's ethics, which you'd think he'd be the polar opposite of, because Kant's all about treating every person as an end and not a means, whereas sadism is all about reducing everyone to just a means to your own pleasure and feeling of power. But uh, anyway, I think a program to kill fans would be interested in all of these, and uh, I I think Saad still remains to be understood as an influence if a very negative one but I think somehow he is key to the contemporary world. Anyway you might wonder if this chapter doesn't in fact undermine McGowan's thesis that serial killers are by and large a product of the deep state because both of these guys obviously precede the American state but his point isn't that all this evil shit can only come from the deep state or whatever you want to call it, but that these sorts of impulses have been weaponized and almost turned into a science by the modern deep state. And they'll forget that DeRay and Desaad were of the ruling class of their time. And just as an aside, I've quietly observed the recent twitter discourse about the film salo which was an adaptation by pasolini of sod's book 120 days of sodom a very brutal movie um, artfully made but not one i would necessarily want to revisit very eagerly uh, much like program to kill actually um but the question it was whether Pasolini was presenting a critique of fascism or just being totally degenerate and projecting his own perversions onto fascists, I think the debate is is really dumb. Um, It doesn't have to be simply one thing or the other. I mean, it's very on the nose that it is a critique of fascism, but that doesn't mean that uh, Pasolini didn't have some other interests beyond that narrow political aim um, doesn't mean that the movie doesn't have a kind of allure that is maybe exploitive or indulges in the, the same kind of impulses which brings me back to what I was saying earlier about Blood Meridian and the problem of an aesthetic presentation of violence I would compare it in a way to the movie Apocalypse Now which which is an anti-war film, ostensibly, but it also presents war as a very beautiful and transcendental and religious experience, in a way. There's a, there's a scene in the movie, Jarhead, which is about Desert Storm, and all these young guys are about to go to war, and they're watching Apocalypse Now, basically to get pumped up for combat. Now, that's like a standard, naive misreading of the movie, which people tend to do, like gangbangers who watch Scarface, or people who just think Walter White is a badass in Breaking Bad. But, you know, if uh, a movie or a TV show perpetually generates these kind of misreadings, uh, what does that say about the movie or even the medium? And I think Breaking Bad, the same, too. People debate this all the time, but... Yes, it's true by the end of the show, Walt is a bad guy, clearly. An anti-hero or villain protagonist, if you like. But I think it's also clear that the show does admire him in a way as well. But uh, recently this came up with Sallow because there were these text messages that had leaked between Marilyn Manson and Johnny Depp. They were talking about having their own Sallow. Uh, as if the fascists in the movie were just presented as cool guys or something. And that's interesting in itself because Manson has a potential Operation Phoenix connection. His father was uh, in Vietnam and exposed to Agent Orange and has some dubious connections in that regard. Manson himself is we now know is obsessed with uh, S&M and torture and things of that nature. And it's kind of funny. He's a a lot like Michael Aquino in the sense that everybody took him very lightly because he had this uh, persona that was, uh, you know, scary and evil. And everybody sort of went, well, he couldn't be like that in real life. In real life, he's like a nice guy. He couldn't really be that because he was clearly pretending to be that just like we can't th- and this is, a very, this is a very modern notion, it's very strange too but like Aquino kind of looks like this cartoon version of a Satanist um, and I think LeVay actually pioneered this kind of style so he couldn't really be an evil Satanist, right? not with those eyebrows but uh, McGowan does talk about the movie Salo um, because there is a conspiracy connection there Uh, if you don't know uh, Pasolini was murdered before this uh, movie was released and apparently there was footage that went missing I don't know all the details but he was supposedly killed by this prostitute uh, who ran him over with a car and smashed his genitals and burned him And it has, as many people have pointed out, all the marks of a kind of vengeance-based mob hit. And we know that Italy during this time was pretty much run by a fascistic gangster state that was operating through a Masonic lodge called Propaganda Due. It was deeply corrupt and was connected to the Gladio operation that's a big rabbit hole but uh, what I was going to say about Solo is that if the movie were just the opposite of glorification and it was just like this message movie about how fascism was bad it kind of seems excessive or an unnecessary film for that but maybe not I don't know but as I was saying, you know, the serial killer has now earned its place in American mythology. And even I remember in the 90s particularly, this was like a Gen X thing. There was kind of a counterculture of valorizing these individuals as rebels and anti heroes of some kind even when they aren't celebrated, I think a lot of the culture around them tends to be voyeuristic on some level. And there may be a case to be made for that being a catharsis in the Aristotelian sense, but when you read a book like this, I think it's difficult to maintain those kind of attitudes. Because first and foremost, rather than being Romantic outsider characters McGowan reconfigures them as Agents of the elite And weapons against you And your children And this should Shake you And make you angry Quite honestly I don't know what is to be done If this is true But the first step, I think As Howard Beale once said is you've got to get mad and you know, I don't believe that we, for the most part are set up mentally, cognitively to follow mere facts and have paradigms and narratives spontaneously emerge from collections of facts if a fact doesn't fit our world view we tend to dismiss it or devalue it. So I don't think it's a matter of just reading a book full of facts, which this book largely is, and seeing where it goes from there. This book is challenging to your paradigm, and it will probably only be accepted by people who are willing to have that paradigm challenged, those or those who are already in this paradigm, of course. But actually we have not ever been as well situated uh, as a mass public for accepting a paradigm like this because we're living in the wake of the Epstein case and the Jimmy Savile case in England. It's interesting there's no Savile material in this book. If the book had been written later, it almost certainly would include that material. Um, The book was published in 2004, so I think the Savile stuff didn't come out for almost a decade. Now the Epstein case is interesting because, I mean, compared to some of the stuff in Program to Kill, it's like amateur hour. It's hardly anything, but it does point very obviously to networked elites engaging in illicit underage sex. Those activities most likely being used by intelligence services for the purposes of blackmail and control and then having a fall guy to take the heat when the whole thing goes south. So minus some of the more extreme stuff and program to kill, that is essentially the paradigm. So I think the time is right for more people to look into this stuff. Now, I am skeptical of some elements. I don't buy everything in Program to Kill or in Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon either. The interesting thing about Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon is he doesn't ever have like a as on-the-nose conclusion as he does in this book, but that's a I guess a subject for another episode. Anyway, all I can say at this point is uh, Program to Kill. Read it.
1: I